Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Uh, we're going to be going through chapter 20, verse, verse 12 this morning, if I go lightning speed. Last week, we read how Jesus had been falsely condemned. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was crucified at the hands of the Romans under the pressure of the Jewish leadership there and the crowds that they rallied. And while it says in Luke chapter 23, verse 25, it says that Jesus was surrendered to their will, we cannot forget that these things ultimately happened according to the will of God and according to the scriptures that were penned long before. And these two things, they happen together, the will of God and the will of men. It's very interesting. There are two ways in which God works, that God intervenes in human history. There are two ways that He does it, through miracles and through providence. Miracles are when God breaks supernatural laws, and we see that all the time through the Old Testament. We see that in the parting of the Red Sea. The parting of the Red Sea does, does not happen, amen, unless God intervenes. Uh, Elijah going up in a chariot of fire does not just happen. That is supernatural. An angel taking a donkey bone and killing out 185,000 people, that just does not happen. The miracles of Jesus when he touched people and he healed them, that just does not happen unless God intervenes. And the apostles, those are miracles. That's one way in which God works and in, in, intervenes in human history. And the other way, in which is the way he's normally working, is through pro, what we call providence, divine providence, which is... God working through people and their decisions throughout the ages, and lo and behold, His will happens through that process. Can you believe that? And this is what we call providence. Jesus knew God's will concerning the Messiah, that He would, as Jesus said to His disciples in Luke 20, 9, 22, He said, the Son of Man must suffer the things... Uh, many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Jesus knew that is what the Scripture said. And so Jesus knew what would happen to him because the Scripture said it would happen and how it would happen over a half a millennia earlier. But those events that were prophesied worked out both through in real time through men acting, women acting, on their own wills and their own volition, and yet we see God's plan coming to pass perfectly just as He said it would. Those two things working together, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Like in Psalm 22, we read just last week, where we read about the nails in His hands 500 years before crucifixion comes on the scene. Thousand years before Jesus was crucified, we read about those who surrounded Jesus on the cross, what they looked like, what they said, what they would do, how they divided his garments right before him. We read about these things, all of these things, a thousand years before they actually happened, and yet they all happened in precise timing when the time was supposed to come about through people acting on their own volition. And Isaiah 53, which we didn't get to last week, describes how Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth as, we, as, uh, as Jesus was silent before his, his accusers, and how the Messiah was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, Isaiah says, he was punished. And we saw before 
how he was before Pontius Pilate. He was quiet before him, and those accusers and all the things that were happening laid out there in Isaiah 53, also describing the crucifixion some 750 years before Christ or 700 years before Christ. And so in the cross, we see that Jesus died a substitutionary death so that those of us who believe upon him would be justified before God. That is, in other words, Jesus died in our place so that we wouldn't have to have the wrath of God. He took it for us. And we'd be declared innocent through faith in that sacrifice. So we see God, his providence working through the cross. Another act of God's providence was that Jesus' legs were not broken. And yet his side was pierced. And all these things that were prophesied in scriptures like Psalm 34, verse 20, Exodus 12, 46, and Zechariah 12, 10. And although Luke doesn't describe it here, John in, in his chapters uh, records these things that were fulfilled. Let me read them for you in John chapter 19, verse 31. It says, Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have his legs broken and the bodies taken down, all the people who were being crucified, he wanted those three people, get their legs broken so they can no longer push up and breathe. They would suffocate quickly. They would die. It was brutal. They would take an iron mount and smack their legs and break them, and they would die very quickly. Happened to the other two, but Jesus had already died. And so therefore, the prophecy was fulfilled that his legs would not be broken, not a bone in his body would be broken. But the other two were. And so what they did is they took and they pierced his side with a lance, which was prophesied. It would happen, and blood and water came out. It's not like these guys are reading their Bibles. It's not like these guys are going, okay, this is what happens next. These guys were Romans. And yet God's plan worked out through their actions perfectly. This is the divine providence of God. It says, but when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the man who saw it gave his given testimony. And this testimony is true. This is John speaking. He was there. He saw it. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. And it says in John 19, verse 36, that these things happen so that scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as other scriptures say, they will look on them whom they have pierced. And so everything that happened to Jesus was known by God. And Jesus willingly accomplished the will of his Father to, as we see, God's divine providence being worked out through human history. God's plan is, was being acted out. And by the way, it is being acted out right now. In world affairs all over the world, it is happening. It might not seem like it, but it's happening. Just as it was then, it is now. With these things in mind, we're going to continue to see the remainder of our time, how God planned both the Messiah's funeral and his resurrection. Jesus' funeral was planned at least a thousand years before it happened. Talk about funeral planning. And the resurrection as well. So let's pick up in chapter 23, verse 50. So it says, Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he came from Judea, town of Arimathea, <clears throat> and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. 
And so in verse 50, we're introduced to a man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. It's a city uh, in Israel there. Uh, it was probably there. They don't know exactly where it is. But Luke, Luke describes him as a member of the council. This would have been the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin that just sentenced Jesus to die, that just got all the people in the crowd uh, to scream out, crucify him. That, that ruling council, the member of the 70, he was a member of those men. Yet, Luke calls him an upright man. This is because he did not consent to the decision. He was, a, he, was a, he was a lone dissenter from that decision. He was not going along with all those things, although the majority of them did. And the word for upright man here is the word righteous. It's the same word used about Christ when the centurion said, surely this was a righteous man. When the earthquake happened and they looked up and they saw him, they said, surely this is the righteous man. And that word for righteousness means is 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 saying that it's a righteousness from the inside out, not from the outside in. It's an inside out. Surely this man was a righteous, upright man. He's acting from within. Jesus is righteous by nature. That's, that's his natural state. But we see here that this Joseph is also righteous, but that is obviously and a work of grace. He's righteous because God has been gracious to him. So Joseph was an upright man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And we know that Joseph followed Jesus. Did you know that? Because John's gospel in chapter 9, verse 38, says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but only in secret for fear of the Jews. So some of you uh, secret agent Christians have a friend here. You know, for fear of the Jews, for fear of the boss, I'm a secret follower of Jesus. And one more detail that the other, the other, other gospels give about Joseph is Matthew 25, 57 says he was rich. And so Joseph was a member of this council. He was an upright man. He dissented. He was a disciple of Jesus, and he was rich. That's who this man was. And that's all we know. And verse 52 says, going to Pilate. Mark's gospel says, boldly going to Pilate. Imagine how much boldness you'd have to have. Reject after all of your buddies in the council just almost caused a riot to kill Jesus. And then you go against them and say, we're going to go ahead and get the body of Pilate. So he says that going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus's body, verse 53, and then he took it down. Can you imagine that? And he wrapped it in a cloth. Can you imagine that? Blood still on his body, and you're wrapping Christ in a cloth, what that must have been like to have to handle that and to see that. One, and then he took him down, and he placed it in a tomb, his body in a tomb, cut in a rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. When Joseph was granted Jesus' body, John's gospel tells us that Nicodemus was with him. Nicodemus, remember Nick at night? Remember Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3? Yeah, the same Nicodemus. And, and they both took the body of Jesus down, John says, and down from the cross. They wrapped it in cloth, and Nicodemus had around 100 pounds of spices. So he was rich as well, obviously. He was a member of the council. And they, buried, uh, they, uh, they had burial spices, and they put it probably on the cloth, and they wrapped it in, 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 in the cloth, and they wrapped Jesus, and they put him in that tomb, which no one had been laid. The tomb was in a garden, John's gospel says, which is where Jesus had been crucified. Jesus was crucified in, the gar- in a garden. Do we know that? I mean, how many of you pick an old rugged cross on a dirty hill? So it was a highly trafficked place, and yet it was called a garden. 
And that just blows me away because that makes me go think back to Genesis, where's the tree of life? Just like little pictures here and there that make the gospel just totally... Anyways, I freak out. That's for me, not for you. Don't worry about it. And so it's close to where Jesus was crucified. And when I was in Jerusalem, I stood at, the, at the, one of the sites for the garden tomb, and then Calvary, that picture I showed you last week that looked like a skull, where they think Jesus was crucified, that is, I could literally, it's probably from one end of our property to the other. It's very close by. And so um, the, the idea is that they're trying to hurry because the Sabbath is coming. That's what verse 54 says. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. So they had to be done by sundown. So they took him down, brought him to the closest grave, which happened to be Joseph's grave, because he's a rich man, had it cut out of stone, you know, and they put him in there. And so they had to be done by sundown. Now, I don't know if you, if you picked up on this, but if you know Isaiah 53, again, written 700 years before Christ, you're going to remember that Isaiah 53, verse 9 says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in him. And so we find that Joseph of Arimathea was the rich man in Isaiah that he, Isaiah spoke about 700 years earlier and that his grave was the one that Isaiah was talking about. Can you imagine that? The rich man, the upright, waiting for the kingdom of God, dissenting from, from the mess that was going on, seeing the, unju- the unjust actions, being moved and compelled to go against the flow, to ask for Jesus' body, to take it down, to wrap it, to bury it in his own tomb. And so Matthew's gospel calls it a large stone that was placed across that tomb when he put it in there. He took it, the body, he wrapped it, he put it in, in a large stone. The word for large in Greek is megos, which is, so it's a megos stone, all right? It means it's, it's a big stone. Verse 55, just want to help you there. The women who would come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and, all, and saw the tomb and how his body had been laid in it. And then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in order to, uh, in obedience to the commandment. If you remember last week, we ended chapter 23, verse 49, where it says, but all who knew him, including the women who had followed from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. We know from John's account that in addition to John and Mary being at the cross, that there were all of the women who followed Christ, they hung around, all the boys scattered. And you've got John alone, and you've got the mother of Jesus, and then you have all the women. And this would be Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene were there, and others. And Luke tells us that they stood at a distance watching these things. That's where we ended last week. That's a quite, it's quite possible that a few of these women were still there when Joseph came and took down the body of Jesus, and so they followed him just a short distance into the garden. So they're just sitting there looking at Jesus. He's dead. There's all these women. They're just looking. What's going to happen? What's going on? Bewildered. And then a short time later, they see someone come and, and they take down his body. And they're going, what's going on now? And they follow him 
a short distance away to where the grave is. And we know that these women were there, and these are the women, the story of the resurrection. And according to Mark chapter 15, 47, the women here were Mary Magdalene, the women at the tomb, and the other Mary, as Matthew calls her, uh, because there's so many Marys. There's like, I can't, can't, I'm like, Lord, could you have done something else in Providence, name people different? No, everybody's named Mary here. And so they've got to distinguish who the Marys are. And so Matthew even just calls her, he just, yeah, this is the other Mary. How would you like to be called the other Mary? But anyways, it's, it's, this would be Mary, uh, James the Lesser's mother. And there's a bunch of Jameses, by the way. Two of them are disciples. This is the lesser one, I guess. Um, so how would you like to be called James the Lesser and the other Mary? She's the other Mary of James the Lesser. Um, but there were, <laughs> I know this is pastor stuff. There were two apostles named James, and obviously this was one of his mothers. But if you pay close attention, listen up, church. The women who have been behind the scenes ministering to Jesus' needs, as Mark 15.41 tells us, they have been behind the scenes. The guys have been in the limelight. But now, at the most crucial points of all human history, right now, at the most crucial point of all human history, these servants of Christ, these women, now get to be the first-hand witnesses of not only the death, but the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the women who were there, the first-handed accounts. Not the guys, except for John at the cross. It was the ladies. Besides John, it's the women who had silently been serving Jesus in the background, and they are the ones who are with him at his death, and they are with him when he is buried, and they are the first to see him resurrected. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Amen? And here they are at the tomb. They saw how his body was laid in it. They went home to prepare spices and perfumes, and this would have been for his burial. Now, if you've noticed that it's already happened, Obviously, they didn't see what had happened. They didn't see them doing that in the tomb. They probably just saw afterwards his body was laid in there and they took off because it's in a tomb. Um, but the plan was that they would go home for their spices. They'd prepare the spices and they would come back on Sunday morning because the next day was the Sabbath. They weren't going to do anything on that day. And so they had to get done, back, done before sundown. And they met back at the tomb early on Sunday morning and that was their, their plan to anoint Jesus' body. And so chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, on the first day of the week, that Sunday, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. And they found the megos stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they had entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now what Luke doesn't tell us is what happens between the time they left on Friday and what happened during the Sabbath in that Sunday morning. He doesn't tell us. And, and Matthew 27, verse 62 to 28, verse 7, gives us some insight. Let me read it for you. It says, Matthew 27, beginning of verse 62, the next day, the one after the preparation day, this would have been the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that 
uh, alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. And so give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. It's amazing that the Pharisees were dialed into Jesus' teaching about the resurrection and the disciples were clueless. Anybody else pick up on that? The people who should have known were like, all mourning and freaking out, and the Pharisees are expecting something to happen. That's, isn't that weird? And so it says, take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and, a guard means a guard of, a detachment of troops. And go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. And so they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And so they placed guards at the tomb, and they put a seal on the stone. This probably means they put a uh, a mark of the emperor on a, a, on a clay tablet that was pushed into the stone, and there's a bunch of different archaeological explanations for this. But basically, if you mess with it, you mess with Rome. Don't mess with Rome. Do you see that? You break that, you're paying for it with your life. And that's the idea behind this, the, the mark. And so they had a detachment of troops. They had a mark on the Magos stone. And so let me say that they tried to put guards at the tomb and seal it under the threat of Rome, but let me tell you that nothing is going to keep God's plan from going forward, church. Nothing is going to keep God's plan from going forward. He will accomplish it through miracles and through providence. It is moving forward, and there's nothing that we can do about it. And it goes for us as well, by the way. The world can try to make sure that to keep Jesus locked up inside of you. And they do a great job. They put guards around, they put policies, they put seals on stuff and threat of this and that. But I tell you what, do you want to let Jesus bust loose or do you want to hold on? Because Jesus is coming out one way or the other. And he's either going to do it through you and you're going to get the blessing or he's going to do it through someone else. Amen? Be and step with the Spirit on those things. You can either be part of the plan or willingly passive, but God's will will be accomplished, and hopefully you will willingly be that vessel. Amen? So extreme precautions were taken by the Pharisees to make sure Jesus' body stayed in that grave. No one stole it. Nothing happened. And Matthew continues in chapter 28, verse 1. I'm reading out of Matthew here. It says, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, there we go, went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. I'm, I'm thinking he just, he did that, and he got on, he's just like, you know, I think he folded his arms. That's what I think he did. That's just me saying that, though. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And by the way, that's the normal, proper response when you see an angel. You fall down, you pretend like you're dead. It's kind of like a bear that's glowing and bright and huge, you know? <laughs> but they are so majestic, so they're actually present here now as we worship, that when men see them, their natural response because of our own sinfulness and their holiness 
is that we just fall flat on our face. And we become exceedingly fearful. That's what happens over and over in Scripture. And it causes us to want to worship them because of they're so glorious. And that's what happened to John in chapter 19. As he sees this angel who's relaying these things, he falls down and starts to worship him. And that angel says, stop, buddy. I am a fellow servant. I'm a fellow servant. And he goes on talking about the spirit of prophecy as Jesus and all this stuff and pointing all the worship and the glory to Jesus. And this is why when people fall down and start to worship Jesus, he doesn't stop them because he is God. And he receives worship and he has glory. If you read Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 17 or 18, you see John fall as though dead when he's before Christ in his transformed presence where Jesus has wool, uh, hair like, like, like wool, and his eyes are like fire, and he's like bronze, and he's glowing. And this, this description of this otherworldly Jesus, not your Euro Jesus, resurrected, powerful, amazing, glorified Jesus, our King, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. When he sees him, what happens? He falls down. It was as though is dead. And then Jesus reaches down and touches his hand and says, don't be afraid. I am the first and I'm the last. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I was living. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Get up. And I hold the keys to death and hell. That's our God. He's awesome. So angels in the presence of God, they fall down and there's this fear that grabbed these guards. And it's because of this experience, they had to run away a little later in verses, uh, and they had to spin the story. A little verse later in verses 11 through 15 in Matthew 20, it says that some of the guards went into the city and reported. I'm sure the other ones are like, I'm out of here. But some of them went to the chief priests and told them everything that happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep him out of, you, know, you out of trouble because they would die because they left their post. And so the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day, that the body of Jesus has stolen by his disciples. And many of you hear that story today, that, oh, just, you know, that's what happened. Well, that's where this started. Well, how do we know we have the correct information? Let me tell you, who's on the council? Who's in those meetings? Got two guys, first-hand witnesses. That's how we know. That's my guess is how this got relayed. You've got Joseph and Nicodemus relaying the information of what was happening in those inner things. And I think that's how you got a lot of what was happening in those, what was happening at Caiaphas' house and all this stuff as it was going along. So the women come to the tomb and the stone had been rolled away. Back in Luke chapter 24, verse 4, that's where we are. It says, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men clothed in, in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. So two angels. One came down, rolled around, sat on the rock, folded his arms, and the other one was there just managing. I have no idea what was going on. And it says in verse 5, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. Again, the response they have. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. 
He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. Back in John chapter 9, Jesus had been transfigured. He comes down from the mountain and he starts explaining to his disciples, I've got to go to Jerusalem. And he shares these things. Guess who was present in, in that time? The women were with them. Remember what he told you. And then they remember. And this is what happens to these women. They go, oh, yeah, I forgot. And that's how the providence of God works. You don't realize the providence of God is happening until afterwards you look back, oh, that was God. And so they get off the boat and they realize, oh, God guided us to this place. We'll call it providence. (laughs) Pretty interesting, isn't it? And Jesus had told them that he was going to be, he was the resurrection and the life and they had been delivered He's going to be delivered to be crucified, and on the third day he'd rise again. He repeated it three times, made it very clear. And all through the Old Testament, there are pictures pointing to the resurrection, some hidden and not some so hidden. This is something they should have known. But if you remember the prophet Jonah, what happened to the prophet Jonah? He jumped off the boat. I mean, he was, a, he was kind of a disobedient prophet is what he was. He jumps off the boat because they were all going to die in a storm if he didn't, because he was disobeying God. God told him to go to the Ninevites. He said no. But he jumps off, and then a fish grabs him, and he's three days, three nights in the belly of this fish, and then he gets spit up on shore. And Jesus alludes to that and says, that's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be swallowed up, but on the third day, I'm going to come back to life. That's one picture in the Old Testament, kind of, kind of a subtle picture if you're just reading it. If you remember the story of Joseph, he was falsely imprisoned while, and he, remember his brothers threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery, great brothers, um, and then he got sold into slavery in Egypt. And there in prison, after a series of events, he met two men, two men who worked for the Pharaoh, the, the, the king in charge, and those two men were, um, were working in the king's court. One was a baker and one was a cup bearer. He would, you know, one ate the bread and one had the cup. Uh, they would taste the cup, make sure the uh, King didn't get uh, poisoned. And so um, they have these dreams. They said, hey, we've got these dreams. And they explain these crazy dreams. And Joseph says, I'll interpret those dreams for you. And so the interpretation was, one of you guys is going to die in three days, and one of you is going to be restored in three days. And sure enough, the baker died, and the, the cupbearer was restored in three days to the right hand of the king. And so you have the subtle picture of the resurrection, both the bread and the cup. Very interesting. The bread and the cup, the death of one and the life of the other. Very interesting. All kind of subtly packed in there in the Old Testament. I'm just giving you some examples. And then there's one that, is, that I just think is just amazing. One more. Abraham. God told Abraham to take his only son Isaac on a three-day journey to the mountain that God would show him. And on that mountain, he was to sacrifice his only son. I want you to take your only son. I want you to sacrifice his. Mind you that it is through that son that the promises of God were supposed to come forward. Now, if you're reading this, you're going, God, this is a disturbing story. Why would you tell him to take his only son and to sacrifice him? That is just does not seem like your nature. Correct. However, they came to the mountain of Moriah, And Abraham put the wood on his son's back and he led him to the place where he would die. And as they approached the place, Isaac asked his father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Normal question. 
And Abraham answered in Genesis 22, verse 8, he said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Or some of your translations, God will provide himself for the burnt offering. And just as he was about to plunge the knife into his son, God stopped him. And it says, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, replied Abraham. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your only son, your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorns, and he went uh, by its horns, and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And to this day it is said, on the mountain the Lord uh, on the mountain of the Lord, it will, it, will, uh, it will be provided. And it is on that very hill in Moriah, in Jerusalem, where Jesus Christ was crucified 2,000 years later when the Father took the Lamb of God and did not withhold the knife, so to speak, and put His Son to death as a sacrifice for you, for me, for our sins. Exactly the way it happened. Now, what does that have to do with the resurrection? Good question, since we're talking about the resurrection. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 tells us that by faith, when God tested Abraham, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. God said it's through Isaac through all the nation, that all the nations will be blessed, correct? If Isaac dies, the nations aren't being blessed. Does that make sense? Like, this is the only guy. Through this guy, all the nations are going to be blessed. If this guy dies, there's no promises. It's all on him. And God's asking me to go ahead and sacrifice him. And so it says, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offering will be reckoned, basically, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in this manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. In other words, I trust God's promise so much that even if I do this, God will have to make good on his word and raise Isaac from the dead. And it is through faith in both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are justified before God. And Abraham was justified, not by works, not by circumcision, not by the law, not by keeping the Sabbath, none of that stuff. The only the way that Abraham was made right with God was trusting in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, basically a picture in Isaac. And by the way, through Isaac, the Messiah would come. He was his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Jesus' great-grandfather. And so we see both the miracles and the providence of the resurrection fulfilled on that Sunday morning, all according to the scriptures that was foretold that blessed day. Verse 9 in Luke 24, we're almost there. And when he came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. They saw the empty tomb. And they'd been, had a conversation with the angel. And they had the conversation there, and, and they went back and told the eleven. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others. And so here we are getting more Marys. There's a Joanna there. And they went and told this to the other apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to be them like nonsense. 
Sadly, this is how the disciples were, slow to believe. And they're guys. But what the women said was cohesive and it was consistent. They had been changed by Jesus. They had been devoted to Jesus. They had been with Jesus since Galilee. They had ministered to him. They were with him at the cross. They were with him at the tomb and now at the resurrection. Everything about these ladies' lives said, trust me. Did it not? And yet the disciples did not believe the women. I think this is captured in Thomas's attitude later on when the rest of the disciples are in on it, but Thomas was missing. Remember that? And in, in John chapter 20, verse 25, Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where his nails were, put my hand to his side, I will not believe. These are the guys Jesus chose. <laughs> nine of the 11 did not believe the women. Now let me say, nine of the 11 did not believe. But actually, when he told them what happened, John and Peter did. Luke just says that Peter here in verse 12 runs, but John, obviously, he talks about John being there as well. So verse 12 says, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. The other guys are like, yeah, whatever, this is nonsense. And Peter's like, boom, out the door. He's impulsive. He's always the first to do something, right? He's always all in. I love that about Peter. And he runs, he's bending over, he sees the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself, what has happened here? John's account says that Peter raced, he and Peter raced, John and Peter raced. Of course, John adds this. They're always in competition. It's pretty funny. And John adds that he beat Peter. <laughs> Such guys. And he doesn't add himself because, of course, he's humble. You know, <laughs> it's the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. Beat the snot out of Peter as he ran to the tomb. Sorry. And he went there, and John doesn't go in, but Peter does. I love that. Peter's first out the door. John doesn't go in, but Peter busts right in. When Jesus appears to Peter shortly after, he's going to jump off the boat first. He just cuts off people's ears. I mean, he's, I'll get out on the boat. I'm walking. He goes and walks. You know, we look at that and we go, oh, Peter, Peter, Peter. And we're always sitting here all reserved. Who did God use? Who do you hear about in the New Testament? After this, you hear about Peter and John, basically. I mean, you hear a little bit about James and these other guys. It's the guys who get out of the boat. It's the gals who get out of the boat. It's the people who just run in abandonment to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. That God goes, you. You. Yeah, you. You're all messed up. You're going to need some work. But guess what? That's what he does. He works with us. Amen? We've got to get out of the boat. We've got to run to the tomb. We've got to jump off the boat. We've got to just go for it. All in. That's what, what, you know what that's called? Faith. It's when we do something about what we believe. Even though it might be a little messed up and squirrely, God will straighten that out, but it's faith. Amen? God loves faith. It's just believing Him. And so Peter, he's always in. And you can imagine what's going through Peter's heart. He had denied Jesus three times. He went away and he wept bitterly. I mean, this is his life, his last few years of his life. He just, his hope had died. 
He'd betrayed. He, could, he wasn't the man he thought he was. All these things. And it says that Peter looked up. And there's that evidence. The strips were there. The, the cloth was folded, John says, or one of the other Gospels. And, and it, he went away wondering what had happened. It's interesting. Do you remember the women standing at a distance from the cross watching these things, it says? They were contemplating, my guess, is what, what all this meant. And now they had stayed close to Jesus. They had been with Jesus through it all, and Jesus reveals himself to them first. And now Peter would soon see for himself that Jesus is alive as he is contemplating these things. I love how gracious Jesus is with Peter and how tender, even in his folly. Mark 16, 7, talking about this section, closes this section with the angel telling the women when they go back, says, uh, telling them that he says, go back and tell the disciples that Jesus is alive and Peter. And it adds, and Peter. The angel's like, he had special instructions. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter. And you know the Lord is saying, we're going to get Peter. Why? Because Peter's ruined. You got to tell Peter, I'm alive. I'm alive, Peter. You blew it. You're far away. I still love you. Here I am. I'm risen. I've conquered it all. I love that. The Lord singled out Peter. Hey, Peter, I'll see you in Galilee. I said I would. Remember that? And then you fast forward, Peter's fishing, and he recognizes who he was. And what does Peter do? He just abandons ship. He jumps and he swims right towards the Lord. And then we have the whole Aslan Peter conversation where Lord has to talk to Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He doesn't ignore it. He deals with it on. You know I love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. I only love you this much. And Jesus recommissions him. Go feed my sheep. Go do what I told you to do. But before you go do all that stuff, I want you to wait in Jerusalem and I'm going to empower you to do what you cannot do through my Holy Spirit. You're going to be the believer you never could. When the Holy Spirit fills you, you are going to be a witness that you'd never been before. And Peter did, and he was. And we know that he went to the cross upside down, church history says, because he deemed himself not worthy to die the same death as Jesus Christ. But God worked those things out in Peter's life. And so, brothers and sisters, God's promise has come true. God worked miracles and worked through providence to see it come to pass, and nothing will keep God from accomplishing His will in and through this world. And He desires to do it through His church, and that is you. But listen, it's not, not going to happen through the organizing of our, army, our armies and our strength and our talents and our wisdom. And if we can just muster the kingdom of God forward... It happens as we humbly fall on our face before God and say, Lord, use me. And some of you this morning are like Peter. You've, you've totally jumped out and you've blown it or whatever might happen. God is still here and he would have you run back to him, dive off the boat and go run and hug him. And he might have to have a few words with you to straighten some things out. But know that he's going to restore you and he's going to send you out to go do it again. <laughs> Amen?
But nothing will keep God from accomplishing His will. Rest in His Word. Rest in His finished work. Rest in His promises. Not only to save you, church, but to sustain you until you see Him again shortly. I'll see you in Galilee. In the meantime, remember that this life of light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that outweighs them all. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, and I want to close by reading this other verse that I forgot to, forgot to write the reference to. It says, For we know that if this, in this, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. We long for the resurrection body so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That we put off Matt 1.0 and get the eternal one that fits with the spirit we've been given. We long for it as Christians. We long for the resurrection. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit and a guarantee, as a deposit guaranteeing what is coming. And so church, you have the Holy Spirit within you. The day is coming when you will see Jesus again. Until then, look to the resurrection. Look to the promises. Your life might be burdened. There might be things going on that are heavy and stuff might be going through, but God is working through providence. His plan will move forward in your life. Just trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey, church. Amen? And through faith, we're not only justified, but we will be glorified at the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that we would press on. We ask that we would know that you are the one who went before us. You are the firstborn from the dead. You are the one who conquered death. You're the one who lived the life we could not live. You died in our place. And I pray for anyone here this morning who is never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. The Bible declares that the person who is born of the flesh is going to die and be separated from God for eternity. But he sent his son to die for those of us, which is all of us, who have sinned, who have broken God's law. And that's all of us. And we await God's judgment, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe upon Jesus, who died in your place, would not perish but would have eternal life. And if that is you, if your heart is being pulled by the Holy Spirit this morning, do not neglect that. This is eternal life. Repent from your sin. Call out and follow Jesus from this day day forward. Say, God, I am a sinner. God, forgive me of my sin. And he will. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. Come and make me new. I don't deserve it, but I receive it. And right now, God will... Come in and make you a new person. You will have that Holy Spirit in your heart and you will begin to change by His grace. For the rest of us, He saved you and now He's sanctifying you, which means He's making you more like Jesus every day. Do not long, no longer walk in the ways of the world. Put off the flesh and follow the Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.